morning, everybody. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 21 this morning. I've got a handout for you that's on the, uh, on the chairs there. Uh, and then also, if you're online, there's one that's posted up on the church website. You can look at it as well. Uh, the most important thing is we're going to go to Matthew chapter 21. And in here, we're going to continue the moral of the story, the parables. And, and on that main uh, screen that was there just a second ago where it says the moral of the story, there's a great little line that Pastor Doug put in there and putting this whole sermon series together. And that is that we wouldn't just be merely listeners of the word and so deceive ourselves, do what it says. Jesus has an intention that we would do what it says, that we're actually living out the faith that we have. This is not some esoteric, just mind idea here that we're involved in, but we're actually followers of Jesus. That's what they were known as. The word Christian came up later. The notion was simply we follow Jesus on the way. Okay, so uh, if you would bow your heads with me and I'm going to pray. Lord, we ask an anointing would come over uh, both the reading of the word, the hearing of the word, and then the movement into the doing of the word. We thank you for the text. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. You, Spirit, move among us freely. Do the work that you so desire to do in my heart and in all of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So the parables are taught to different crowds. And then we had that we talked about the parables being for the people, uh, three different kinds of people. There was in the house parables. There were in, a, in the house parables. And those were the people uh, that, that were called the disciples. And Jesus would teach them in a private setting. Last week's uh, parable that we looked at was a teaching with Jesus in the house. Then there were ones that were on the porch. And what I mean by on the porch is anybody going by could just hear them and listen to them and go, okay, wow, that's interesting and that's unique. Then we have a third type of parable, and that is, is Jesus on, uh, on, uh, on the war front. Jesus is going to make an important statement. I need to si- uh, line up for you a little bit. Uh, sorry, am I just a little bit too low there, Ian Joel? Should I go up? All right. There we go. Um, is it Jesus is on, uh, on, on, he's got Mo, right? He's got spiritual momentum going on right now. uh, Chapter 21 of Matthew, here's what happens. It's the triumphal entry. Jesus comes into the city on the back of a donkey. They're they're waving the branches. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna. I mean, he's had his walk in. Now you need to understand the context. The Pharisees were on their big week of the year. This is Passover. I mean, this is front and center. This is the the week that they get to go and stand up and wear all their outfits and pomp and circumstance and make sure all the people know that they're in charge and all like that. And Jesus comes in on a donkey and they are angry about it. They're angry about it. So there's a spiritual setting here of a lot of animosity going on. So you need to know that. So what is in chapter 21, we record, he comes into Jerusalem. He goes to the temple. So he just walks right up, stands in the middle, and what happens? The crowd all rushes to him. Well, the Pharisees didn't like that. They didn't like it one bit. So we're like, hey, you're supposed to be listening to us. And they didn't want to listen to them. They were tired of that. They were excited about the teachings of Christ. Then Jesus curses a fig tree. So again, I said he's a little bit on the war front here. And then the, the authority of Jesus is questioned. So that's in verse 23. And then he has a parable of two sons. He lays out something, he makes it very specific or personal. And then we get to the parable of the tenants. And you look at it and you go, oh, it's just, you know, kind of gloss over stuff. This one's going to hit you right in the head. Okay. He's going right after the spiritual elite. So let's jump in verse 20, uh, 33. Jesus says, red letter stuff, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some, vine- some, some farmers, and he moved to another place. Stop for just a second. 
When he says this 2,000 years later, we're here in Boise and we go, yeah, okay, whatever. Here's what he's saying. Let me get personal for a second. Let's make a college football Saturday somewhere in the country three weeks from now, right? And there's a group of people that are somewhere in the southeast of the United States, and they're talking about football. And one of the discussions they're having is they're watching a game, and it's late, late at night. And they're like, oh, man, there's some game on tonight. I don't know. They play on blue turf, and they look like Smurfs. And my goodness, they just, you know, they, they don't know how to play. They won one bowl game. They've been walking around 10 years talking about how they beat OU in the Fiesta Bowl. And, and you go, they're talking about us. Those are fighting words, right? I mean, there's a BSU alum. He's sitting in front of a seat going, you said another thing, Harvard, and we'll come up here and smack you a little local <laughs> on the head, right? That's exactly what's going on in this parable. Jesus is saying to them, there was a, 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 an owner who built a vineyard, put a wine press in the middle of it, and put up a watchtower. Isaiah chapter 5, one of the songs that they sung in the Pharisees and in among the Pharisees was, that God was a vineyard, had planted a vineyard, and in it there was a wine press, and on it there was a watchtower. And isn't it really wonderful that he made us the people who had the key? So he's getting right in their kitchen, rattling their pans. It's getting spicy, okay? So follow along with me for just a moment. He says, when the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. You need to underline or note the idea here is that when God makes an investment, he expects a return. So when God invested into the people and he gave them that beautiful gift of being called God's chosen people in that process, he expected, when I give you the vineyard, we're going to get grapes. Okay. So God's a God who expects a return. So it says here in verse 35, uh, when the harvest or 34, when the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized the servants and they beat one. They killed another and they stoned a third. <clears throat> The Pharisees would have known what this meant. The Pharisees would have known that it meant this. They beat the prophets. They killed the prophets. They stoned the prophets. All the people that God has sent to them to recalibrate their hearts, to reset their beings, to stop them from being this religious, legalistic, spiritual elite, they killed them all. <clears throat> so now we read further into the, into the, uh, to the story. It says he sent other servants in verse 36 to them more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. So he sent the first ones with messages, then he sent some more, and now we get to the last one. Last of all, he sent his son to them, and they said, they will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is their heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. You got to know something. They knew that Jesus had been called the son of man. They knew that he was being called by many as the Messiah. The, the apostles have already made the statement. Who, uh, Jesus said, who do you say I am? And they said, you're the Messiah. You're the one. You're the chosen one of God. Everybody knew this buzz, and that's why they were so angry with him. And then when he goes into the story, he basically says, I know your game plan. You beat up all the prophets. You took care of all the people afterwards, and you're going to come for me. Now, you have to understand how any kind of a plot or a conspiracy or something happens is there's usually about three to five people in the inner circle or sanctum who know exactly what's going to happen. And I think the Pharisees already had said, we're going to kill him. We're going to take care of it all. And the guy we're going to go to is Judas. You guys know there were 12 apostles, right? 12 disciples. 11 came from the Galilee. Country boys. One came from the city. Who's the guy that betrayed him? The country kid or the city guy? The strangest critters, critters always live in the city. Don't ever forget that line, all right? So Judas is in the city, and he knows his way around, and they know him, and they go, hey, we can buy that guy off. 
right? So all of a sudden, I think the Pharisees are going, did someone tip him off? Did someone tell him? Did you tell him? Who gave, who gave this away? How does he know? I think that there were also a bunch of people that were a part of the Sanhedrin who were not in the know. They didn't know this was going to happen. They had inklings about it. They'd heard all the rumblings. But here it is. Jesus is saying, you're going to kill me. I get it. Come for it. Right? You want a little bit of this? Come for me. I mean, that is going on in this parable. And some of you are going, Jesus saying, come for me? I mean, he's not some thug, you know, or whatever. Jesus is using very direct words. And I know we live in a world of very deep sensitivities today. Well, we're just afraid to say something a little strong. Jesus had no worry or concern about saying something strong. It's right here, red letter stuff. So when they saw the son coming, they said, we'll kill him. So they took him and they threw him out of, the, out of the vineyard and they killed him. Now, this is a very important picture. I know that you're reading it and you're going, how is he pulling all this stuff out? This is very important. He says, they took him out of the vineyard and they killed him. What, what does this mean? Those of you who've gone to Israel with me before, you've seen that in the old city of Jerusalem, right? You had all the walls. You had a watchtower, right? Temple Mount. And what else do you have? You had a place where God's resources flowed. That's where his hand is on. It says in the text that it's the city that God put his name on. So here he says, you will take him out of the city and kill him. What they're saying, he's saying, you're going to put me on that cross called Golgotha. And Golgotha was in the city or out of the city? Out of the city. There's, I guarantee you they're going, oh my gosh, he knows exactly what we're going to do. How did he know all of this? He's saying it to their face. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Now, the guys who were not in on the fix, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the lesser ones who hadn't heard about the whole story, I think they're the ones that respond. You can see right here, it becomes black letter stuff, right? Here's a response to some of the Pharisees, not those who planned to kill him, but some of the others. He, uh, he said, Jesus says, well, what do you do to a guy who does that? And they yell, uh, he, we, will bring him, we will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard then to other tenants who will give him the share of the crop at the harvest. Jesus then comes back with a scripture. And again, he's going right straight at him in verse, uh, in verse 42. Have you never read the scriptures? So think about it. He looks at them. He goes, do you even know what the Bible says? Do you even have a context? So Jesus is just throwing down. I mean, he's giving haymakers now at these guys saying, do you, do you understand the Bible at all? To understand something about the Pharisees, by the way, to be a Pharisee, you had to be over 30 years old. You had to be married. You had to have memorized the five first books of the Bible and the Psalms and the Proverbs. You couldn't even get into Pharisee school without all that memorization. So they knew exactly what's going on. So Jesus, Psalm 118, quotes it and says... The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this. This isn't this marvelous in our eyes. And they look at, because this was a prophecy of the Messiah, that the chief cornerstone, the Messiah, the one that sets everything into place in God's kingdom will be rejected. Now, I know for us, we don't quite gather that, and we don't, we don't kind of know exactly what it's doing. I, I want to step into a little bit of the sociology of, of this for just a second, and I want us to ask some questions. You've got your hand out there. Why don't you look at your questions? So the question is, why does Jesus teach in parables? Let's step back out of the little you know, fight going on between the Pharisees and Jesus here for just a minute. Let's ask the question, why does Jesus teach in parables? I mean, why, why the riddles, right? What's going on? So then on the bottom, I got them for you there. Uh, I think one of the reasons is, 
He teaches in parables to relate to normal, everyday people like you and me, because he taught about a son who had gone away, and then he was a prodigal, and he came back. He taught about stuff that put you and I on the edge of our seats, because he realized that we were just normal people. I want you to see a group of five people that I think that Jesus is talking to in the parables, okay? These are five general types of people. I think the first reason why Jesus taught in parables, he was talking to the normally lost, you and me, guy that drives a truck for a living, guy, gal that runs a, uh, owns or manages an Albertson store, owns their own business, uh, does whatever it is in normal everyday life. I think that's the normal loss, the person in the middle, because you know what, what was going on with the Pharisees? And some of you, and I'm, I don't mean to be too rude here, but some of you went to some, uh, you know, as you grew up, you were in high church experiences, and you went to churches where what did they do? They just talked right over your head, right? They talked about all these great grand things, and if you didn't do it right, you maybe got a ruler to the knuckles, right? So they were talking to the people like that over their heads, and they were running around like a set of spiritual elite. The Jesus that we know taught in parables because it was everyday person language, it's nice that you just go, hey, wow, I can relate to this. So that's the first reason. I think the second one was to remind people of God's truths in a practical and a normal and a real way. I mean, you guys are all living your lives. One of the reasons why we as pastors, Pastor Steve and Pastor Doug and myself, why we try to teach at this just straightforward level is, is you want to just apply it to your lives and move forward and go on, right? He used parables to do that. And then he did the third reason, and I think this is explained best up here. So the third reason I wrote down is he, he taught in parables to confound the religious, both ends, by the way, both ends, to confound the religious of his day, the proud, the arrogant, the fake, the imposter, the spiritually elite, the apathetic religious. He, he was definitely trying to seek them uh, out and, and address them in a profound way. And I would say to you that this parable is very important, and I bet you, you can identify it, because does anybody here like a spiritual bully? Does anybody here, do any of you like those people that walk around and go, well, you know, if you knew what it said in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 7, as it says in the New, in the New American Standard, now I'm going to quote the standard, but you could read it in the NLT as well. I mean, that guy, you're like, could we, who invited him, right? I mean, is he your uncle? Does he have to stay? I mean, what is he going to, could you just tell him to shut up, right? I mean, who likes that guy? Nobody likes that guy. Jesus taught in parables to go right at that guy and he was giving him haymakers, right? The whole notion of SNL with Dana Carvey as doing church lady was that the, that the legalistic, irreligious Saturday Night Live loved to go after the legalistic, religious and you know what happens? All the rest of us watch, right? We love seeing that spiritual bully get taken down. And Jesus is actually parodying these guys. He's saying, I know your game. You're going to try to kill me. Okay, we got to figure it out. God's purpose will be accomplished. This is a different parable. You ought to see it as that, okay? You ought to see it as that. If you, if you look on the second page of your paper there, one of the things that you might want to do is hear an explanation of all of this. I think that the legalistic re religious are people that go around proof texting everybody else's life by knowing it all. They know it all. And you know what? The word of God is this beautiful, wonderful gift that has been given to us by God. Well, when Jesus says to them about the vineyard, he is saying, well, you ought to know in, in Isaiah 5, and you ought to know in, in Psalm 118, he's literally saying to them, you're the one that slams it down everybody else's throat. 
Can I ask you what that actually means? Because it feels like you're actually doing that. One of the greatest maladies that happens, guys, is, is that people take this book, credential their pathetic lives, and tell the rest of us how wretched we are. That goes on in our world, right? And you're going, I mean, you're looking at me like it's me. Am I, am I that guy? If I am, I apologize. And I'm here to say I'm really sorry, and we won't ever let that happen again. No, but what I would say to you is we all feel that. There's a second set that I think is in the crowd as well, and that is the spiritually religious, right? Think of this. The spiritually religious are the ones that, uh, by the way, these guys love the word of God more than they love God. They love the fact they can use it against other people more than God can actually speak life into their lives. The second set of people are the ones that love to sound spiritual and everything is flowery and all driving around in hippie vans and we all look really cool and we're just happening and dude and it's all great and we're just having this wonderful, really great time. And those are the people that just say, hey, you know, God and I are good. You know, it's all great and all like that. And, and Jesus is addressing that second group. And by the way, there's, there's nothing wrong with being God is, you know, I'm at peace with God and I'm at peace with who he is. But don't ever forget that he is the God of the universe and that the God of the universe doesn't ever come to you for instructions. We come to him for instructions. One of the struggles going on in loosey-goosey Christianity these days is, is that we've made Jesus a dude and he's no longer Lord. Don't forget he saves you and he leads you. He loves you and he is Lord of all. Okay, there's a real interesting combo there that we need to remember. The normal lost, the normal person walking around. The world is now filled right here as well with a scientifically irreligious. We live in a world where the scientific method has truly become a counterparty or a counterbalance to this idea called the word of God. Nothing wrong with science, and I'm not saying there's a dichotomy. What I'm saying is, is that the world has simply said, yeah, you know, we've evolved from these kinds of things. They don't matter anymore. Those Ten Commandments are really ten suggestions, or maybe they're, you know, just guidelines. Maybe they're just, you know, relics. Maybe they just don't matter anymore. Isn't it funny how everybody thinks that thou shalt not steal is a relic until someone steals from them? And all of a sudden you go, well, let's, let's dust off Exodus 20 and check that out. I mean, you know, why is that person stealing from me? Isn't it amazing how it's meaningless until it affects my life? But that's what's going on. And we live in a scientific world. Nothing wrong with that. And I love all the advances of science. But in the scientific irreligious, here's what they've done. Nietzsche said, God is dead. And they say, yes, he is. And we'll prove it to you. Okay. And we're going to come after you as well. Which, by the way, in our day and age, these people in a secular world become these people. See that? These people in a secular world become these people, or they become these people. So it flips, and they move up here to the top. The scientific say that Darwin is, it was, was everything. We'll come back to Darwin here in just a minute. The last one is the legalistically irreligious. They do whatever they want, however they want. They don't pay their bills. They care. They're just free floating around the world. Then they do whatever they want to do. And that's how life works. Now, let's do a little bit of sociology for just a second, okay? I remember when I was younger, I used to say, man, you know what I mean? I was born in 66. That's 1966 for the youngsters, not 1866. So I was born in 1966. I remember thinking, hey, you know, it'd be kind of cool to have gone back and been like an adult or at least a teenager in the late 60s and see all that happened. Now that I've seen it in the new version, I think I'm going to retract the statement. Okay, but let me play a corollary with you for a second. The teenagers of the 1960s at the end are now how old? 
75, right? It's interesting. Is that everybody who started that rebellious, legalistic, irreligious world that's stick it in your face and, you know, we're going to beat up the Christians and we're going to go after them all and we're going to lump them all together. If you believe any of God's truth, then you are this person, which by the way, the tenor of the room has changed for this. If you're here on Sunday morning, okay, in the current environment that we're in, you are that guy to these people. You're him. If you just have any sense of objective truth, anything you believe biblical to be true, you are this legalistic looking down at me. How could you judge me? How in the world could you have the audacity to say that about me? That's the world we live in in this climate. So the 19-year-olds of the 1969 era now are in their late 70s and 80s. And what are they? They're all the retired professors, right? They're all the, the Congress people that are making bills and laws, uh, around us and doing all those sorts of things. And all they're doing is, is they're fulfilling the, the beginning where they went after these guys. And what they were really after was they wanted to become those guys. You see, because what happens is, is that when you get up here on the top, you love the power and you love the ability to tell people what they do and what they don't do. I don't mean to speak too badly about California. I came from the other sea, Colorado. But here's one of the most amazing things I always see when I go to California. I go to the beach and there's like 612 signs between my car and the ocean. Don't walk here. Don't bring your dog. Don't do this. I can't believe you brought this. So you shouldn't have any coolers. If the cooler's over 42 inches in height, width, and weight, then you have to take it back to your car and you have to unload a few of those kinds of things and you can't grill on the beach. I mean, you see what I'm saying here? What's happened is, is that in the world we live in, the legalistically irreligious have become the new religion because what happens is we always replace the truth of God with the paganism of our world. And so all those rules become rules you have to live by, right? I mean, you're breaking laws. You don't even know you're breaking laws when you're going to the beach, right? I mean, I get harpooned when I go to the beach, so I'm careful about that, right? I go into water and some of the guys out here with a spear gun looking to stab the great white Harvey. And so... Let's go back to this for a second. The world we live in, I said they're in their 75s and 80s, right? You know what happened was, it's interesting. Tell me who you think this, the, the, that I'm ex, uh, uh, describing for a second. Works for a nonprofit, spends their primary time speaking, does a lot of research, can never get fired, tells everybody what to do. Okay. <laughs> Okay, we got, one, we got one for Bill Gates over here. <laughs> How about college professors? Works for a nonprofit, spends their time speaking and lecturing and, and researching, can never ever be fired, tells everybody what to do. Is that our world? Seems like our world, right? Subsidized by everybody else. The normal loss, just going to job, you know, working at Albertsons tomorrow, just paying my taxes and doing my thing, being told by the next set of people how your world and your life is just so wretched and so awful. Jesus went after the spiritual bullies of the day who were using that Torah and that Bible to beat people up. And what was God's real goal? Let me make this picture a little bit different. I'm not a graphic artist, but play it with my, you know, pretend with me here for just a minute. Let's put a line right here. Okay, we're going to put a line right here and we're going to say all these are going somewhere, right? Remaining lost, remaining sort of spiritual, remaining dogmatic, remaining, you know, holding on to all the different tenets of everything that they believe about science. And that is the highest uh, ideal or God. And then everybody out here just going, do whatever you want. It doesn't matter until you touch my stuff and then I'm coming after you. Okay, that's our world. 
dot a little line here, and that is this. Where is God trying to take all these people? God is trying to take them all to the same place because God loves this woman. God loves this man. God loves this boy. God loves this girl. God loves this adult, right? God loves all these people. Where is he trying to take them? He's trying to take them to the place where when they answer the three big questions of life, they look to him. Every one of us are going to ask those three questions. You're asking him already. Why am I here? Where did I come from? Sorry, where did I come from? Why am I here? Where do I go when the game stops? Where did I come from? Why am I here? Where do I go when the game stops? Everybody's asking that question. That's the, 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 the question of meaning, right? And, and unfortunately, what this group of people now is saying is your primordial sludge and the suicide rate has gone out of the roof because people go, I have no meaning. I have no purpose. I'm not here. I don't care. I mean, what, what does it matter, right? Let's just finish. I mean, why do I play this out and then I get a mortgage, right? Mortgage, you know the word mortgage. I've told it to you before, right? It's the Greek word coupled with the French word. Mort for mortality, gauge for grip. It is the death grip industry. No offense to you in the death grip industry. Why do I want to get a mortgage when I could just off myself now? That world has done all of these things. That world has come in and said, it's survival of the fittest, it's natural selection, it's adaptation, until it's not. Let me get spicy for just a minute, right? I had cancer through, through COVID, right? So I battled cancer, I had cancer surgery a year ago, almost the next week, right? Praying to God, asking him to heal me, all those kinds of things. So during COVID, what happens is, and, and I'm going to play, please hold in dynamic suspension. So don't, if you walk out, just, you know, wait till I'm done at least, right? Or if you turn your TV off, wait till I'm, you know, get one more line in here. But that group of people said to all of us that you are primordial sludge, this notion of your soul doesn't matter, you're just another person, human being, and you're just another number on the planet, right? And we're all fighting to get to what's next. You know, if we can ever get to Mars, it's all going to work out, right? So, you know, if we can finally get the resources that we're all going to need. And then we get to COVID, they should have looked at me and said, hey, hope you make it, pal. Survival of the fittest, natural selection, adaptation. You'll either adapt or die. But what did they do? They went, whoa, no, we got to go way down here to the person with the biggest, 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 biggest vulnerability to everything. And then all of you have to adapt to it. That's a moral thought. You know what they say? You don't have a soul. 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 Wait, you have a soul and you matter and we should look out for you. Really? See, what happens, this is why Jesus went after these guys, is that whenever you put that word and that word, same word, when you put this word in front of this or you put that word in front of this, here's what happens. There's always hypocrisy. And Jesus went right into their hypocrisy. So he beat on the Pharisees because he was really making a statement. And that is on this dotted line, God wants you to come to the end of yourself. So you come to the beginning of him because all of us have an end, right? There's a best by date on every one of us. Fair enough. I mean, I've got a best by date. You've got a best by date and we work our best to do what? To live as long as we can and as well as we can because we want to have life in him. Let's go back to the start of the parable. God said, I made a vineyard. I fully resourced it with a wine press and I put a watchtower above it. If you're that tenant, you had everything you needed to thrive in your life. And he says, I I made you to thrive. 
and he went to the religious elite and he said, stop beating on my people. Bring them to the truth. The truth is, for God so loved the world, and, and Ashley did a fabulous job talking about it while we were, we were singing our songs. God loved you so much that he sent his son so that you might have life. You know that, that John 3.16 verse is followed up by John 3.19, probably one of the most least read verses in the Bible is in the same chapter, John 3.19. It says, but the verdict was in, people love the darkness more than they love the light. And so they chose the darkness. See, that's where our world is today. So nothing wrong with science. I mean, I'm the guy with a math degree, right? I love math. I'm the guy that wants to see the holes in Jesus's hands. I want to see all those testable things. And God is this beautiful God who says, sure, I'll show it to you. I'll do that. But there's one thing that is common to all this. And that line right there represents our side line is God wants us to come to the end of ourselves to the beginning of him. You know what keeps us from coming to the end of ourselves? You know what that line, that fence is built out of? You know what those planks look like? P-R-I-D-E. Pride. Pride. Pride is what says, I know all the answers. I'll tell everybody else about it. Pride says, I'll do religion however I want. Pride says, Yep, I work for a living. The rest of you are schmucks. Yeah, you believe some silly, stupid thing. Pride says, I have the facts on the science, on the ground, until they change, and then I'll change with them. And it is called a theory, but anyway, you should believe it as fact. And then I come to this person, and they go, man, you guys don't get it. You should do whatever you want. It's 1969, and it's the summer of love, and we ought to do any and everything that we want. There are two Old Testament small g gods that are confronted on Mount Carmel by a guy named Elijah who was a prophet that the people actually had to struggle with as well. And there were two gods that he faced up against and there was a lady named Jezebel. And I'm guessing none of you have ever heard of a person in your life named Jezebel because she's not someone you name daughters after. Okay? Yeah, that's a cute name, Jezebel. But you know what was interesting is that the two gods that they worshiped that were the gods that came against the God Jehovah in the Bible, this God that, that was wanting them to stop being legalistic and for them to know him and for them to all be saved, is that the two gods that were served in the Old Testament were a God named Baal, B-A-A-L, apostrophe in the middle of that, and Molech. And you know what's so interesting is that Baal and Molech had two requirements for their worship. The sacrifice of innocent children and the worship of weather. That sounds somewhat familiar. That sounds somewhat familiar. It's ironic how when we act legalistically, we turn everyone off and, we, and, and when we act like God is not a God who's a personal God, but just a do-whatever God, is that it confuses everybody else, and then it creates the, 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 the empowerment of the gods of this earth that look to seek, kill, and destroy your life. But Jesus came that you might have what? Life and life in abundance. That's why he took on Dana Carvey and the Pharisees for all of us. He said, you're getting it wrong. You think you can just beat people over the head with it. No, you bring them the truth, and the truth will set them free.
gift of the parables, isn't it? Don't you love our church? We just never talk about anything controversial whatsoever, right? <laughs> I can't wait for Pastor Doug to come back next week from his study break. I mean, he's going to be just like moving around. He may be like hovering next Sunday when he preaches this week. Because we talk about the real things. And we don't talk about it with our fingers pointed. We talk about it with our fingers pointed, not at you, but at him. Look up, look up, look to him. God has life for you and you and you and you and you. And he invites you in and he says, don't be spiritually intimidated. Be spiritually welcomed and lay down your pride and come to him and you will have life. Let's stand together and I'll lead us in prayer together. Father, you are that good God. And the world around us, uh, oh, Lord, have mercy upon them. Show them grace and favor. Let us not be those legalistic, spiritual, religious elite. Let us be a people that love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Lord, guide our steps to be the people that we want to be for you so that we might have a witness in your kingdom. Thank you for the body of Christ. Bless these brothers and sisters, Lord, as the students begin to prepare and the families uh, to begin uh, preparing to go back to school. Lord, speak life and blessing over them. May the summer finish with thorough goodness. Protect them. Give them hope, blessing, and good. In Jesus' holy name, the church said, amen. Amen. Peace of God. See you soon. Thanks.